the last few weeks have likely been busy for you. So before Christmas, we had been uh, talking about what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. We've talked quite a bit about how this was a, a, prom- for, a promise foretold by Jesus, and he said he'd send us the helper. And we read about how the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost and how when the Spirit was sent down, there appeared, as it were, tongues of fire resting upon the heads of those that were gathered together for worship and that they spoke in various sorts of tongues and that there was a crowd there that witnessed what was going on and, and there were some skeptics in the crowd and some that were just generally wondering what in the world is this, wanting to know more. And so that's where we've been. And this morning we are, find ourselves in a sermon in a sermon. It's Peter preaching a sermon, and, and it's his sermon that we're going to listen to this morning, and it's the sermon that he preached that I, I'm preaching to you. And so would you stand with me? We'll all stand together as we open our Bibles and look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. This is the second half of Peter's sermon after he quotes from the book of Joel. This is the word of the Lord. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay." For you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke to the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word of the Lord. Amen. Raise your hands and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that we do not serve a God of the dead, but of the living. We thank you that Jesus conquered death and hell, and therefore death will no longer have victory over all of us, all those that love you, nor will there be any sting in death. The only pains that linger are the pains that we experience on this side of the grave. We thank you that Jesus, our advocate, has been raised up and is exalted at your right hand. And what a place for our advocate to be. Thank you that you will place your enemies under your feet and that righteousness will reign. May righteousness reign in our hearts first, Father. Father, may there be no one who dies here that is an enemy of you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago, I read a small book written in the mid-80s by a, a guy named Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Perhaps some of you have read it. There are many helpful thoughts, provoking thoughts, in that short little book that he wrote. The author, through that book, is, is generally exploring the impact that television, TV, has had on our culture. The overall thrust of his book deals with this question. This is his question, listen. What happens when we expect entertainment from things like politics and news? He doesn't really take up an issue with entertainment for entertainment's sake, but the question that he posits, the question that he asks with the book is what happens when we consciously or subconsciously start to expect entertainment from things that should not be entertainment, entertainment from things that should be serious, entertainment from things that are factual and real. The author compares and contrasts various forms of communication, mainly written text and then image-driven media like television. And Postman shows how news, when presented through TV as a medium, becomes a form of entertainment rather than a serious source of information. He calls it the now-this phenomenon, where unrelated stories and facts are presented in very rapid succession, one after another after another. And so, in a very short news clip, a news reel, you will go from hearing about a school shooting where there were deaths to hearing about war in foreign countries. And then 20 seconds later, to hearing about a candidate's latest snafu, you know, in the presidential election. And now we've covered three major things in less than a minute. And we haven't really had any ability to think on any of those things with any real seriousness, any real depth, without any time to really exorb the truth of what is being said. The author argues that we are inundated with facts, and because they are more like entertainment than anything else in the way that they're given to us, we lose the ability to think very deeply about them. And they don't really have any real bearing on our life. That's what his argument is. So many of the things we hear may be significant or important to someone, but they aren't 
important in any way to us that has any bearing on the way that we actually act, think, spend our money, spend our time. Almost 40 years later, what the author of this book observed with television in the mid-80s is child's play compared to our interactions with news and with other facts with our modern technology. You think about the number of headlines you can scroll through in 60 seconds, the number of status updates, the number of pictures you can scroll through. This was his concern in the 80s. And just think about the way in which screens and entertainments have multiplied since then. Then we had stationary TVs. I remember even in the mid-90s, the portable TV that Andrew Kolchagoff and I rigged up at camp was this little pink thing. We had to run it off a humongous battery in the back of his van. It was a marvel. It was a work of art, a, a TV that you could take with you. But in the 80s, your TV came with legs, walnut veneer, 300 pounds, tubes. Not so anymore. Then you had one Hollywood. Now we have many. You know, what is Hollywood? I think it still exists, but so does Hulu and Disney Plus and Redbox. Or does Redbox still exist? I don't know. Netflix. We have many Hollywoods. We have the internet. We have screens everywhere. We carry them in our pockets. We wear them on our wrists. We have social media, which is completely built upon a foundation of entertainment. Think of social media and all that it communicates and all the serious things that it communicates, but the whole heart and foundation of it is entertainment. It's there to entertain you. Some years ago, I was in a casino, um, and I was walking through noticing the interior de design, which was cheap Art Deco that had never been updated. It looked like it had been stained and tainted with years of nicotine without ever any cleaning or attention. And I was thinking about the design. Just I was staying in the hotel. We had been able to stay there for free, which is why I was there. And I was sort of walking through the... They make you walk through the casino to get to the rooms. And uh, I was sort of thinking as an objective, sober observer about the inside of such a place. And I think for anybody like me who was just objectively walking through, you would consider it a casino, very confusing and overstimulating. Everything was busy. Everything, the carpeting, the wall tapestries, the, the lights, and it was very ugly. And I remember asking about it, and somebody had told me that actually casinos are designed that way, and they're, they're designed in such a way to keep guests in a constant state of distraction. So once you go in there, you're focused on that which doesn't take, you know, that's easy for you to put your attention onto, and you're distracted as to the time, and there aren't windows for you to tell, you know, what time of day it is, if it's, if it's light out or if it's dark out now. They're, everything about them is to, to keep you from thinking about anything too deeply except for what they want you to do while you're in the building. Not surprisingly, the neurotransmitters inside of my brain and inside of yours are at work in the same way in a casino when you're gambling as when you're on your phone scrolling. Slot machines spin, phone screen scroll, and all the while you are distracted and engaged, but in a very superficial, shallow way. Instead of engaging with news or with information or facts or truth for the sake of learning or communicating, 
Almost everything today is at least in part engaged with for the sake of entertainment. And you and I need to recognize that. We see and we hear so much content, so many facts, and so many of them have really zero bearing or impact on the way that we live our lives. And the result is that facts often lose their significance, their weight, or their importance. Many of the facts, so many of them don't have any real bearing on our lives, even if they are important, that facts in general often lose significance, weight, or importance. As an example, when I was, when I was thinking about this, I just hap- pulled up my phone and I opened up the, f- the news app and to get some sort of sampling as to what I was offered in that 15-minute slot of the day. And I recognize that some of this is curated based on myself, but what did I see? I saw headlines about Russia saying that 14 of their people had been killed by, in a Ukrainian attack. Okay. Is the fact that men in, the Ukraine, uh, and men in Russia were, were being killed, is that fact um, important? Of course it is. Is it significant? Absolutely it is. Does it affect me in any tangible way? No, it doesn't. I go on to the next news article. The Wall Street Journal ran an article about uh, Mount Everest being in trouble due to rapidly melting ice. Is that significant? Yeah. I have a friend that has worked at the base camp. He might be there now, actually, come to think of it, as a a medic. Is it significant to him? Absolutely. Is it significant to me? I have no plans to go to Mount Everest. No, it's not significant to me. It doesn't change anything about my life other than the fact that I know it. I read headlines about Israel and Hamas. Does Israel... Matter? Does Hamas matter? Does the conflict, the war they're in matter? Absolutely. But is it going to change anything about today for me or this week for me? No, probably not. Sports stats, predictions, player changes, all that. No, no bearing on my life, really. We are inundated with so much content that may or may not be important. A lot of it is not important. But the reality is that very little of it actually changes our lives in any way. I think that we all know that this is true. In fact, we think that it's strange whenever news does shape and impact anyone's life in a real way. Aaliyah reminded me of this. Less than a a week ago, on Christmas Day, there was a knock at the door. And uh, Mario had stopped over with Judah and uh, was just popping in to say hi, and we were chatting for a few minutes. And I asked him, you know, about the gifts that he had gotten for his family for Christmas. And he said, oh, I got a, I got, I went out and bought a whole ton of my pillow shoes. Huh? My pillow shoes? Yeah, you know, you know what's going on with them. I just wanted to show him my support and love. I, I have no idea what's going on with my pillow. Well, apparently my pillow is a pillow company. They also make shoes. And, you know, he, Mario, he, he's a Christian. And he's going through some hard times, and this was heard about in the news, and so Mario decided he's going to go out and buy everyone my pillow shoes for Christmas. Well, that was sweet of him, and I'm sure his family enjoys those shoes. And yet, it struck me as something a little, something I wouldn't do. I wouldn't go out and buy anything at a store because I heard something in the news. That illustrates exactly my point. You understand what I'm saying? I think we all can to relate to what I'm saying if we think about it in an objective way. We live in a world where facts, even important ones, for the most part, are weightless. Things that 
don't carry much practical implications or bearing on our lives. In a day where everything matters, nothing matters. We're saturated and overloaded with content and facts. And they start floating around, even the ones that shouldn't, even the ones that should sit like granite right before your feet. Today, so many things have become weightless. Okay. The reason that I've spent the time that I have trying to make this point or trying to get you to lodge this idea at you and hopefully it sticks somewhere in your mind. The reason that I've done it and spent the time on it is that in our passage, the sermon that I read to you at the beginning of our time together, Peter is addressing a large crowd that is both curious and skeptical. They want to know what all this stuff about Pentecost is about. And what Peter offers to them in reading through his sermon is one great and glorious fact. That's what he gives them. You need to recognize that his sermon is essentially boiled down one great glorious fact about history. It's a fact that, like the Ukraine war, we would all acknowledge is very important. But many of us don't find many things important in the way that we live our lives day to day, even if we would admit they're important at a mental or a, or a, a, a philosophical level. It's important in a distant, far-off kind of way. Peter offers a great, glorious fact. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. That is what he says to the people. You boil down his whole message. The Jesus that they crucified has been resurrected. This is the basis of Christian faith. This is the basis. This is ground zero. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, referring to the events of Pentecost, which you both see and hear. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And this isn't in any sort of abstract, this is not some sort of abstract theory. This isn't just some religious concept. This is a fact. Peter says, I've seen it with my own eyes. It wasn't just that Peter saw Jesus risen from the grave. He appeared to many. It wasn't just Peter. In verse 32, Peter says, we are all witnesses. And he's referring not just to himself and most likely not just to the, the 12 disciples, but to the whole crowd of disciples that had been gathered awaiting for this coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' resurrection is central, not just to Peter's sermon here, but as we will see ahead, Jesus' resurrection is central to everything in Peter's life. He brings it up and again and again in his sermons, of which we're going to read in the coming chapters, and throughout his letters, his epistles to the church, much later in his life. He says this, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are facts to Peter. They are things that he has seen he is known personally. <clears throat> what Peter says about Jesus is not rooted in opinion or conjecture, but is historical fact. The whole of his sermon is presenting prophecies 
both from Joel and King David, both of which predict the things that have recently taken place at the time that Peter gave this sermon. He saw Jesus risen from the dead, and he never stops preaching the fact of that resurrection. It is the hook that everything in the Bible hangs on. Do you recognize that? It is the hook that everything that Jesus taught hangs on. This is why the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, everything you put into being a Christian, the time, everything you put into it is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then if those who have fallen asleep, if those who have died in Christ have also perished, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Everything hangs on the fact of the resurrection. Paul goes on to say, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, first fruits of those who have asleep. Jesus has been resurrected first, and we will follow. Given that we are constantly inundated with information and facts that might be significant, that might be important, but that have no real bearing on our lives, that don't elicit any tangible response from us, We must take very careful uh, precautions to make sure that the, the truth of Christ, the fact of Jesus' resurrection, never becomes something that's very important to us, but that fails to shape or guide our lives. And that is something that is a real reality. You might think that would never happen, Nathan. How could that happen? Well, our hearts couldn't ever grow cold. Your heart couldn't grow cold to something that you've known for a very long time. You don't think that that could happen? I'm reading in Jeremiah right now, and it's amazing to me. In the book of Jeremiah, the people of Israel, they know all the right things about what God had done for them. They know all the things that God has commanded that they they do for him. They go on and on about the temple. They engage in all their religious ceremonies. But they also fail to really consider God. They fail to reckon with the God that led them out of Egypt. To deal with, to engage with the God that had led them out of Egypt and had given them the promised land. They gave him lip service. They said that he was important. Oh, the temple. Oh, the chapter 7. Oh, the temple. The temple. The temple of the Lord. Oh, God. They saw what they said is very important. Yes, these things are important. These things are tenets of our faith. But they didn't affect the way that Israel lived. I'd like to warn you, if you don't think that it's possible to view, hold something very important in your, in your mind and heart in a way that fails to connect with how you live, if you think that that couldn't happen, you're actually probably very close to that happening. It happens all throughout the Bible. Are you not to learn from what the Scripture teaches? Have you reckoned with the resurrection of Christ? Have you dealt with it? Perhaps you did a long time ago. When you were a young person, you thought about it, you made a decision regarding Regarding it, you believe. Well, that's very good. But have you reckoned with the resurrection? Have you dealt with this reality since that point? 
Did you consider the fact of Jesus' resurrection this past week? Has it entered your mind? You see, the resurrection of Jesus, if it is true, it changes everything. It is not an overstatement to say that the resurrection reorients the course of the universe. It gives the whole universe hope. The Bible says that even the material world, the rocks and the stones, await for the day when they will no longer be subjected to futility. They long for the day where they will be remade and renewed. And this is only possible with the material world, rocks and stones, because Jesus Christ was resurrected in order to make it happen. If the resurrection of Christ reorients the universe, it certainly should reorient your life and my life. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact that is not just to be considered once. It is not a reality that's important in the sort of way that many things are, very important but also distant and hard to connect to how we live day to day. It is a fact to be treasured and pondered and rejoiced in every single day of your life. Because, it's, it, because rather, it is the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope for the future, that gives us strength, that gives us life. It is the fact, the fact, that should shape our life and actions every day in very practical ways. Not theoretical ways, not, way, not, not in terms of our, the concepts of our thinking, our mind. The resurrection of Christ should shape your everyday walk with him in ways that are easily observable, nothing that's complicated. And yet, think of the things that shape so much of our life, so much of our decisions. I'm saying it should be the resurrection, but what, what does shape your life? So often it's things like your fears and your worries shape your whole life. Whole segments of your decision-making are, are shaped, are guided by the channel of your fears and worries, the things that you put up to, to guide you toward what you think will make you safe. Fear of what other people may think of us. Fear of what people may say. Or maybe it's the desire for money, jobs we want to pursue. All these earthly things that shape the very practical, everyday way that we live, our desires. Or think about you know, going back to the idea of you know, screens and the, the power that they have. Think about the power of technology and how uh, they play off our, de- our desires, both good and bad desires. They play off our desires to motivate us, and they shape whole sections of our life. They convince us what we should buy, how we should spend our money, how we should invest our money. They teach us to desire this or to desire that, or they play off that internal desire that they've recognized. They teach us, you should want to be like this person. You should want to look like that. Your house should be like this. Your life should look like that. These are things that you and I may not want to admit, but they're true. They are realities that we have to fess up to 
if we're going to deal with them. These are many of the realities that, that shape the practical decision-making of our life, and yet God offers us something so much more glorious, something so much more joyful and happy and powerful. Some may say to me, Nathan, that sounds very nice and spiritual, but I know that I need to mentally assent to the fact of Jesus rising from the dead, but I do not understand how that fact guides or shapes my life. Perhaps some of you here are thinking such a thing. Well, I would hold up to you the Apostle Peter as an example of a man whose life was shaped by the reality of the resurrection. Peter had been one of those close disciples of Jesus. He had been there with him for those three years of his earthly ministry. He had been on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus had been blessed by his father. He had been there as Jesus did his healings and his miracles. Peter's own hand had been one of the hands that distributed the fish and the bread that didn't run out miraculously. But in the end, even after being there and experiencing all those things, Peter wavered. He was ashamed. He gave in to his fears. He cowered under the weight of what other people might think of him. He lacked strength in in Jesus' most desperate moment of need. He denied Christ and he hid. But something has changed. Something happened. And what happened was that Jesus was resurrected. And through the resurrection and what follows, Peter changes. He is changed from the man he was. From this point on, from Pentecost on, All of Peter's life is going to be oriented by the fact that his Savior, his friend, who he denied, who he rejected, who he ran from, lives again. He lives again. It is not just the focus of this sermon, but of all of his teaching. It's the thing that is on his mind as soon as he sets down to write the epistle of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This fact is central to everything that Peter says And everything that he does, his life is carved out by it. He lives for this wonderful truth, and he died for it too. Jesus' resurrection, and therefore our resurrection, looms large on the horizon of his mind. It is his defense for the validity of the gospel. You think about this. This is the first sermon given after Jesus ascends to heaven. The first sermon of the the church as we see it. And essentially, this is the point he's making. Jesus has been resurrected. This was God's plan all along. It was foretold by the prophets, and it's happened, and I've seen it, and I declare it to you. That's it. You think about all the tactics he could have used, or all the sort of massaging and grappling that we might try and employ to try and convince these people. No. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is all that's needed. It's more than what's needed. 
And this is what he presents. This is the central truth that should shape and motivate your life. So to answer the question of what will it look like, how will it shape your life, in a very practical way, in the few moments we have remaining, let me just pull a couple of observations from the text. If you look at the text, first just notice the confidence that Peter has as he speaks. He's confident in his posture, his body language. He's no longer denying Jesus. But he's taking a stand with the other disciples, and he's speaking with boldness on their behalf, even to the crowd that just a few weeks prior had, had crucified Christ. He's absolutely convinced and confident of God's power and authority, despite all odds. Confidence in God is not just mentioned. He does say things like, I'm confident or I'm assured that, but it's in everything, and it's the way he speaks. It's not just his posture and his cadence, but it also, he, he declares this message. This message is one of confidence. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross. Wow. Confidence. Confidence that this isn't just the most tragic thing that has ever happened in the history of the earth it was, but that this greatest tragedy was also only accomplished by the predetermined plan of God. What confidence. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The fact of Jesus' resurrection gives us confidence and boldness in a world that's always seeking to undermine our confidence. Give us cause to second guess. I mean, you just think about this. This is, this is what took place in the garden with the serpent and Eve. Did God really say? Kind of seemed a little confident. Did he really say that? The Israelites going into the promised land. Well, God, yeah, God told you to, you know, drive us out, but we'll serve you. We'll be your servants. Do we really need to drive? Hmm. Our confidence in God is always being, trying to be undermined. Satan is always trying to do this. Peter has a confidence in the risen Christ who rules and reigns, who has an objective, and who will meet every aim according to his predetermined plan. That is an incredibly helpful and happy thing to recognize. That is a wonderful fact to live your life by if you do it. It will give you so much strength. The truth is that even the most self-assured among us are kind of like the chickens that I got. We have some chickens that are still alive. And some of them have glorious plumes and they've got full feathers and they look really big and tough. But we've got a couple of chickens that have lost a lot of feathers. And I, I can tell you, all chickens look the same with their feathers plucked. Even the most self-assured among us, when we're plucked, we don't have much to be confident about. When we're plucked, all that self-confidence kind of just dissolves into a pile of goo on the floor. That's the best of us, the most confident. Some of us never, never feel confident even on our most confident days. You don't need to feel confident in yourself because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Your confidence can be in him. 
He can be your strength. He can be your foundation. Your speech can be confident because Jesus has been raised. Your decisions can be bold because he's been raised. Second, notice the fact that the resurrection gives us death-defying joy. Peter quotes King David as saying, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because everything's going swell. I've got tons of money and the kingdom isn't under attack right now. Nope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. David lives his life in hope. My flesh shall live in hope. That is a radical, I'm sorry, a radically practical, wonderful idea. Why is David's heart glad? Why does he have joy that cannot be pried from his hands? Because he knew that Jesus was not going to abandon him to the grave. Jesus would not abandon him to death. That even past the grave, that there was life waiting for him. And all of this he knew to be true because of his belief in Jesus' resurrection. You will not suffer your Holy One to undergo decay. The resurrection gives us hope and joy. It is what allows us to bury those that we love and to sing songs of praise and cry tears of sorrow and joy while we do so. The fact of the resurrection should cause you to have joy every day of your life. Third, the fact of the resurrection allows you to live for a world to come, a world that you will be with Christ in, resurrected into. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus Christ both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow. Wow, what a clencher to Peter's sermon. What an ending. This is where he drops the hammer. And he does so not knowing what the crowd's response is going to be. Remember, they had just called for Jesus' crucifixion seven weeks earlier. Wow. Paul will preach sermons that are very similar to this, and the crowd will try to kill him. This Jesus, whom you've crucified. Peter is clearly making a bold accusation here. We've already spoken about confidence, but what could and should be added to it when thinking about the way the resurrection shapes our lives is that Peter isn't living for this world here. He's living for the truth of Christ. He isn't living for what these people are going to think of him or what they may or may not do to him. He's speaking for the glory of God. We aren't to live our lives for this world, our reputations, our possessions, our accomplishments. We aren't to be motivated by these things. What did Jesus say? He said, because I live... Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But that's only because he lives. You recognize that. All of our lives, our faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Since Jesus has been raised, we have a confidence that goes beyond ourselves. Since Jesus has been raised, we have a reason 
to have joy that grows because the end of the matter is better than its beginning. That's what Ecclesiastes says. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus, highly exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Since Jesus has been raised, we are freed from living for this life. A never-ending rat race that is unfulfilling often, expensive, and vain. That's what you've been freed from. And we live for an eternity where nothing is vain, ruined, lost, polluted, or stolen. That's what we live for. Christ has been raised from the dead, and he was raised in your world with respect to you. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Is it going to have any impact on your life? How will it impact your life today or tomorrow or thereafter? Every day, grapple, wrestle, reckon with the resurrection. Wrestle with the reality of it and be changed and blessed by it. Be changed and blessed. Let's pray together.